We are uh, back in Gospel of John last week. Where, was it last week? Ecclesiastes? Okay. Just checking. <laughs> I can't tell anymore. You know, what, what pastor Ted used to say, one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is that the outer extent of my horizon is seven days. The weeks just go and go. And Last week we were in Ecclesiastes. This week we are back in our study of the Gospel of John. And the last time we were, last time we were here, two weeks ago, Jesus was, had, um, he just told his disciples some troubling things, that he was going to be killed and taken away from them. And he encouraged them two weeks ago to not be troubled, because even though it looked bad, it was really good. He was in the process of disappearing from their sight. He was putting an end to death. He was bringing to light to everyone the reality of the divine life, and that he was making us all per- participants in sharing that divine life with us and also making us channels to share that divine life with others. And so Jesus is continuing in that same conversation today where we left off two weeks ago and Jesus is making the astonishing promise today that by leaving the world, he's actually going to be with us in a much more real and substantial way. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. In John chapter 14, would you please stand one last time out of respect for the reading of God's word. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let's all listen intently together to the reading of God's word. It's John chapter 14, starting at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of it, Lord. This passage is so full, so dense, again, with promises from you uh, and a description of the reality of the world that we live in that's so hard for us to understand, but such an amazing truth, Lord, that only by your spirit can we grasp these things, which is what you're telling us. So, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us, 
that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would be able to see you, Lord, to know you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey as you beautify your afflicted ones in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I was, ta- I was talking with a friend uh, last week, conversation I have a lot with different people about how every great movie in some way, shape, or form, almost every great movie, if it's, a, if, it's a, if it's a universal theme that resonates with us in our hearts, is somehow borrowing something out of the gospel story. It is somehow hijacking some truth, some ultimate truth of the Christian faith and bringing it into theatrical play, and that's why we are so taken by it and so we resonate with it so much. And so um, there's a scene, everybody knows the scene, Laura, I, I, think, I hope so, in Star Wars, The New Hope, the first, fourth Star Wars movie, first one released, where Obi-Wan Kenobi meets Darth Vader in lightsaber battle. The student finally meets the old master. And in the midst of the, of the fight, Obi-Wan says to him, he says, you can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you could ever imagine. And then at just the right time, Obi-Wan puts his guard down, Darth Vader strikes, and he disappears, much to Luke's uh, discontent, right? He screams out because he doesn't understand what has just happened, that Obi-Wan hasn't been killed, he hasn't died. What's happened is that he has gone on to become one with the Force, and that now, being one with the Force, he's ever-present, able to be a help for Luke and for the rebellion and for all of those fighting for good in the rebellion, uh, and so, obviously, George Lucas did not mean to load up the Star Wars movies with gospel themes of redemption uh, or to give us a beautiful picture of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the coming of Jesus in that, but he can't help it. Can't help it. The reason these stories are so full of these truths is because you cannot speak about universal truths or you cannot speak about the reality that we live in in a way that resonates with us without some way borrowing on those forms. And so, small disclaimer, there's big differences, right? The force is impersonal. The force does not love you. The force is reacting. You can just as easily be mauled by the force as you can be in tune with it. And so there's big, big differences. But... There are real similarities that we can see in that that help us to understand what is happening here. The reality is that at Jesus' death, resurrection, and then ascension into heaven, he did not leave us. In fact, what this passage is telling us is that he, he only became more present in a more real and more substantial way to his people. And so the big idea, the thesis... One thing that Jesus and John want us to know more than anything else from this passage is this, that our love for Jesus is the evidence of his deep presence with us through this evil age. That our love for Jesus is the evidence of his deep presence with us through this evil age. Let's break that down. Part one, our love for Jesus is the evidence. Look at, look at John 14, 15, and I'm going to skip down to 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Let's talk about what this doesn't say first. How many of you, how many of you read that and in, the, in your mind, subconsciously, shifted it into the negative and then put an extra condition on it? So you heard that as saying, if I don't keep the commandments, I don't love Jesus. If I don't love Jesus, I'm not really saved. How many people thought that? Don't put your hands up. <laughs> uh, that's because... <laughs> That's because that is a that's a frightening uh, uh, example display of how our black little hearts are so intent on earning some part of our salvation that we'll read things and twist them in our minds to say something that will allow us to be part of our salvation. The reason we hear it that way is because our black little hearts just pump legalism, and we want it. We just hear things in that way, but that's, that's just not what it says. Not even grammatically is that what it says. Um, I was talking to the exact same friends I just mentioned the earlier, I was talking to Brian and Haley uh, this week, and we were talking about the difference between good theology and bad theology, and that good theology attempts to, as best it can, take into consideration the whole counsel of God's word. It doesn't just focus on one passage, but it, it focuses on that, but then it takes into account everything that God says about these things. And so when we read these passages, we have to first remember what John himself says in his epistles, which is that the only reason, in John, 1 John 4, the only reason that we are able to love Jesus is because God has first loved us. And we also have to remember what Paul says in Romans, what we just read in the reading of the gospel, is that when we were reconciled to God, we were enemies, weak, ungodly, and sinners. That's the condition we were in when God loved us. And so we have to approach this text understanding that the only reason we're able to love Jesus in the first place is because first God has come and brought his love to us. We also have to understand the context here. This is a family dinner. Judas has left the building and Jesus is instructing his disciples about disciple stuff. And so if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? I think there's one of the other reasons this is hard a little bit to understand is that there's two senses of what's going on here. The first sense, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, meaning it's a conditional cause and effect In other words, if you love me, the the result of that will be you will keep my commandments. In other words, the more you love me, the more you'll be able to keep my commandments, which is absolutely true. Our love for Jesus is what empowers us to be obedient to the commandments. It's not fear. It's not pride. It's not self-preservation. It's not merit, it's not glory. None of those things will be enough to help us to really be obedient to the commandments. The only thing that helps us to be obedient is what an old Puritan preacher called the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, the more we love Jesus, the more we appreciate him, the more we see him for who he is and what he's done, the more we are resonating with that love for Christ, the less power temptations have on us, the more we trust him that his word is good and true, and the more we want to act in the way that he's instructed us to act. 
because we believe it's for our good. We know it glorifies him, and we are so grateful, and we love him so much. That is what powers discipleship. That's the only thing that can power discipleship uh, in a way that doesn't lead to burnout. And so that's true. But there's another sense in this sense, the second sense, verse 21, where he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In other words, Jesus talking to his disciples is saying, this is a matter of identity. This is how you know. Who is it? What's the evidence for people who really love me? How do I know that I love Jesus? How do I know I really belong to him? Two things. We have his commandments, meaning they've been placed in our heart. It's like a summary of Ezekiel 36 where it says that he will give us a new heart, give us a new spirit, cause us to walk in his ways, and that we keep them, we observe them. Again, the whole counsel of God's word, not a perfect keeping, but a general current of life. Do we love the commands of God? Paul says in 721 in Romans, in my innermost heart, I delight in the law of God. Is that true of us? Not looking at the snapshot, the bad day, but looking at the video, course of life. Can you say, I love Jesus, I love his commandments. Even if I'm failing sometimes, do I, do I really love him? Do I really want to keep him and keep them? But the even more important question to ask than that is this. Here's the super important question that I think it, most people just glaze right over, and that is, what is Jesus' commandments? What are they? How many thought immediately, Ten Commandments, Sermon on the Mount, moral precept, and then thought of all the ways that you're failing to keep moral precepts and and decided you were doomed. Don't raise your hands. And there's truth to that. As we go out from John, there's more areas of the New Testament that talks about Jesus giving law. He says, I did not, not one jot or tittle the law uh, is is to be discarded. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is a discourse on what the law really means, that it it calls us not to an outward obedience, but to an inward heart love for Jesus that that gives us the motivation to want to be obedient. Um, But here's the thing. If we look at John, the Gospel of John, how John tells the story, how John has told the story of Jesus up to this point that he attaches this statement to, And that's important. First, you look at immediate context, right? When we look at this and we ask the question, what are, what's the word of the moral precepts? You know what we get? We get wash feet. In other words, be humble, love one another, and serve one another in ways that that need to be done. Don't think you're better than other people. Love one another as I have loved you, which is part of the same thought. Be willing to sacrifice for your, to love other people. And to Peter, feed my sheep. And at the end, and pretty much, as far as strict moral precepts, that's about it. Now that tells us something fantastic about the concept of law and, and the concept of commandment in the New Testament. It tells us that we have moved into the age when it's not just a, a written letter of law, but the law for us is, is what the law uh, speaks to, to love God with our whole mind, heart, soul, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Even Jesus says to love one another as he has loved us. And so it's, even, it's, it's, it's a more expansive idea of loving 
one another that the commandment, and the new commandment, as John says in the epistles, is that we would love, we, ought, we, ought, we would operate from a heart motive of love that would control how we acted on the outside. And it wouldn't be outward behavior modification while we raged inside that by the power of the Holy Spirit, instead, we would be transformed to be people who loved because that's who we are. That's who we are becoming in Jesus. And so that's super important. But if we ask, if we ask a different question, if we just make it more general, what are the commandments of Jesus in the book of John? What are all the parts where he uses imperative verbs, where he makes commandments to us? Do you know what we get? Listen to this. Chapter one, receive me, believe in me. Chapter two, be cleansed by me. Chapter three, enter the kingdom through me. Chapter four, drink from me the waters of life. Chapter five, stand up and walk. Believe in the one whom God has sent. Receive life from me. Chapter six, be fed from me spiritually. Chapter seven, receive the spirit like a river of flowing water coming out from me. Chapter eight, come into the light through me. Chapter nine, receive sight. Receive eyes to see, really. Chapter 10, enter by me and be saved. Chapter 11, rise from the dead. Isn't that crazy? That's the commands of Jesus. It's pervasive through the gospel. Come to me and be saved. And so the real question is, looking at those commands, the real question is, how could we not love Jesus if we understand that that's his commands for us? How could we not love Jesus if we understand what it cost him to purchase that freedom and that life for us through his death and resurrection? Of course we would love Jesus. We would have an overwhelming burning love for Jesus, for who he is and what he's done for us. And that love would propel us into wanting to be obedient to his moral commands. And then we see how his moral commands show us how life works best and we're blessed from that, which causes us to love Jesus even more, which propels us again further into obedience. It's a system that God has given us this to bless us show his love for us first. And so, of course, we respond by loving Jesus. It's the only rational thing to do. And so, if we love Jesus, it's more of a confirmation of our identity, of who we are in him. There's a real warning here. There is a real warning if our relationship with Jesus is based on rule-keeping, if it's based on merit, if it's based on a profession of faith that we believe, and yet in our real life we could care less about following his commandments, if our relationship with Jesus is about outward show and about nothing internally that's real, if we don't say, I love Jesus, even when I'm failing, I love Jesus, there's a real, real warning 
there. We are saved by our possession of faith, not profession. And yet, if we do, it means that God has come to us and given us life, and that becomes evidence that our love for Jesus means that we really do belong to him. Point two. Our love for Jesus is the evidence, point two, of his deep presence with us. Good, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will, not, will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. There's a part in uh, Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous called We Agnostics, and it's a chapter that's meant to sell a, a 1930s audience. Imagine this, 1930s, heyday of materialism, the heyday of philosophical materialism, Darwinism, all of that, before all, before, at a period in time when it was, uh, it was, there was almost no response from the Christian church. Uh, that idea ruled the world. And this chapter was meant to convey to this audience that it was more reasonable to believe things you couldn't see than things you could. <laughs> now, that's a hard sell to a bunch of 1930s New Yorkers. It's a hard sell for us, right? And the gist of the, the, gist of the chapter, the best argument is it says, look at the prosaic steel girder, the ordinary steel girder. Science tells us that it's not really solid. It's a mass of whirling electrons. It just appears solid to our eyes. But in reality, when we, the science behind it, we know that if we reduce, if we look at the actual matter in an atom, it's 99.99999% open space. It's not really real in the way that we're conditioned to think it is. And we know from quantum science, it gets worse, that when those particles shrink down to a certain size, they just disappear from reality, and we don't know where they go. We know that if we look to the outward extent of the universe, we know the universe is expanding into something. We don't know what that is. And so, here's the, here's the point. Why am I telling all this? Why are we talking about physics in the middle of the sermon? The point is that even though, even though I know that, I have a good intellectual grasp of that, even though I know that, I am still not convinced that when I close my eyes and pray, I am getting as close to the real world as I get in this life. I still think, I open my eyes, real world, real things, and I close my eyes, and it's not real anymore. And what this chapter is trying to tell us, what this passage is trying to tell us, and what is so hard, which as a, just concerned me all week. How do I get across? How do I get across the a magnificence of what is being said here? And I finally came to the conclusion that I can't. I, there's nothing that I can do to, to if, if this, only the Holy Spirit can reveal what we're going to talk about right now. The hard thing, but the amazing thing to understand is that what this says is though, is that through the connection of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus is now with us in a more real and more substantial way than he was with the disciples. When we read the story, Jesus is face-to-face talking with the disciples. We're closing our eyes and praying, and we think the disciples are with him. We're not. But what this is trying to tell us 
is that he is with us in an even realer way than he was with them. As one commentator put it, he has a deeper presence with us here in this age. And how does this chapter try to convey that? What does that look like? It says first that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, both the Father and the Son have come to us and remain with us. Verse 20, because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whenever I read that, I get this picture in my mind of, a, of a three interlocking rings of the Father and then the next ring of Jesus in the Father and then of us in Jesus so that the connection between the Father and the life of the Father is literally through the person of Jesus. We are intersecting with Jesus who is intersecting with the Father and through that, all of the life of heaven is pouring through and into us so that it's not just the Holy Spirit that's dwelling in us, but it is the triune God. God the Father, God the Son has promised to come and make a dwelling place with us. This is what the, a literal translation means. It means that he has come and set up residence with us. You know, we, in Christmas time, we talk a lot about Emmanuel, God with us. And I've always thought that meant the incarnation. The incarnation means Jesus was with us, and that's amazing. We have the record of it, but then he ascended into heaven, and someday we'll be with him again. What this is telling us, no. Emmanuel is still with us in a more, in a bigger way than even with the disciples. It says that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Jesus makes himself known to us. He says, he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That word manifest, it means to cause something to be fully known by revealing clearly and in some detail. Meaning, you know what that means, I think, is that when we're praying, when we're seeking, when we're consciously focusing to be with Jesus, it's not like we have to dig a tunnel to get to him. It's not like we have to climb this unimaginable ladder to get to him. It means that he is ever-present, ready to be with us and reveal, teach us more about himself, to reveal who he is to us, to really be there and share life to us. It's like when, do you know like when, when, when let's say you, you have a period of real repentance and confession and you expect God to come with the smackdown and instead you are overwhelmed with the mercy of God and the compassion of God and the, the, just the love of God just overwhelms you. You know what that means? That means right then, Jesus is with you. It says that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Jesus leads us into everything we need to know about faith and life through his word. It says... The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
Well, there's a part of that that applies to the New Testament writers who are given the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament. But there's also a part of that for us, for everyone, that the Holy Spirit has promised to give us the illumination of his written word to teach us what it is that the, God, what the, what the Bible says. With, think about it. Without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't believe the Bible and we would have generally no idea what it was about or we would attribute it to some sort of ancient patriarchal uh, mystery cult. There are entire departments of universities that study the Bible is ancient literature that know it better than I do, than any of us do, and they have no idea what it says. It might as well be the phone book. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, because Jesus is not with them, teaching them, instructing them, bringing to remembrance what it is he said and what he meant. And so that means this. Every time you're reading your Bible and you have one of those astonishing aha, wow moments where something comes into view, you know who's sitting right there with you? You know why that is? It's because Jesus is with you, teaching you. Bang! Right there. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that blow your mind when you think about it like that? Here's a big takeaway for us, Presbyterians, everybody. Presbyterians, hold on to something. (laughs) What this means is that our experience, our experience of our life with Christ is more than an assent to theological propositional truth. (laughs) Our life with Jesus is more in our consent with logical truth. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. It means that we have, and through those things, doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's operating as a lone ranger. He's teaching us through his word and through the wisdom of his word and through teaching that is in fidelity with his word. But what it does mean is that our life with Jesus is Full, it is rich, it is a manifestation of his real presence with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is teaching us through his word, he is comforting us in our trials, he's encouraging us in our faith, and that he is really, really with us in a mystical way that is more than just our learning. And we would do well to Take that into account. Point one, our love for Jesus is the evidence. Point two, of his deep presence with us. Point three, through this evil age. John 14, 16, 17. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And so John leaves us, Jesus leaves us with a sober reminder 
and yet another reason for deep gratitude for Jesus and his work for us. The world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Everybody in here probably has a cell phone. It's probably on. Hopefully you're not posting to Facebook in the middle of a sermon. But as we sit here, all of your cell phones are on, and each one of them is receiving countless radio signals. Through the walls, all around us, there is a network of information and connectivity that is happening here in this room through all of us that is invisible to the eye. To where if you did not have a cell phone or if you did not know what one was, you would be ignorant to the interconnectedness, to the help, to the power, to the information that is happening through these radio wave connections. And Jesus is saying that although we live in the age of the Spirit, we are connected to the power and the life of Jesus through that Spirit in a torrent of waters, of living waters of spiritual life pouring out from heaven in channels and rivulets hitting all of our hearts and connecting us together that that massive spiritual activity is absolutely missing, not comprehended by the world around us. They do not see it. And when we talk about it, they see it as foolishness, make-believe, a crutch. The reality of the world as it actually is, is, with, is blinded. That's why the Bible uses blindness as an analogy for spiritual blindness because the world is missing a sense and they are unable to pick up a major, the major, the bigger part of the spiritual reality, the reality of creation that we live in. I have a friend, a friend named William. Uh, He posted this thing called The Truth About God on Facebook the other day. It was a, was a, a clip of Sam Harris, whom I enjoy, Sam Harris, almost as much as I enjoy the late great Christopher Hitchens. He's so theatrical and so articulate and so uh, so good at what he so he's so good at being bad, so good at what he does bad, of just under just calling into question the morality of God. And this whole his whole ten minute spiel is about how God is a moral monster to allow the suffering and pain of children, and anybody who believes in this is signing on to um, this idea of God as as as, as we're just blanking out and, and just believing that God is this moral atrocity. And um, it's from, a, it's from a, a debate between Sam Harris and William Lane Craig, if any of you know who William Lane Craig is. Uh, and if the clip clips, it shuts off right before, right as he's sitting down before William Lane Craig comes up to utterly demolish everything that Sam Harris had just said. And so I went to my friend William, I'm like, hey, Trying to be, I, you know, try, trying to think, of how should I approach this guy? And I said, you know, hey, this is from a debate. It's a bigger thing. And have you heard the other side of the debate? It would be helpful for you to maybe to hear what William Lane Craig has to say about these arguments. I hope you, you know, take a, take a minute and or take an hour and, and watch both sides of it because the one-sided argument is very powerful and very convincing. Um, and his, his response was basically, I'm not interested in debate. I know what I know and I don't care. And then a friend of his came on and said, I actually watched the debate and William Lane Craig had no argument. He just talked about absolutes and some nonsense and it really didn't say anything. Just unaware that not understanding the argument is not the same as not having one. 
And so he was literally in the presence of one of the most brilliant philosophers of our time, making the best arguments for the case for for God, demolishing these arguments that Sam Harris made, and yet he watched that very same thing, and it meant nothing to him. Why? Because he is not spiritually sick. He is spiritually dead. He is not capable of registering what we are able to register because we have spiritual life. We have spiritual sense. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? It tells us three super important things. Number one, it relieves us of the pressure of thinking that we are responsible to argue, persuade, convince people into the kingdom of God. We cannot. No matter how persuasive or articulate, no matter how well you've mastered the arguments, you are not able to, by your own power, convince or persuade or manipulate someone into the kingdom. And that takes a lot of pressure off of us. We don't have to think that, oh my gosh, I have failed and that person is now going on to a life without Christ because I failed to, to do my best. Um, and so what that does, number two, is it forces us to trust in the Spirit of God to go before us. And it gives us great confidence that as the Spirit goes before us, what we're responsible to is giving a competent and understandable version of the gospel, however simple it may be, that you are not perfect, you are not morally perfect, and that's the standard for heaven. The standard to be with a perfect and holy God is perfect moral uprightness. If you don't have that, you're in trouble. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, obeying everything the law required for us to meet the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf, gives us his righteousness as we believe and trust in him and pays the penalty for our sin by his death. And if you would trust in that, that work that's been done outside of you for your benefit and stop trusting in your own works, in your own merit, in your own ability to love Jesus more than the next guy. That's what gets us to heaven. Simple as you want to put it. The Holy Spirit will pour through that like a raging river of life into the person whose heart is being opened by the Spirit of God. That's, that's all we have to do. That's all you have to worry about, all we have to worry about as a church that is geared towards evangelism, towards mission. That's all we have to worry about. Can I tell you what we believe as Christians? Two minutes, follow-up conversation, watch God work in and through that. And the third thing, the most wonderful thing is this. What it means ultimately for us is that if you are aware of the Spirit, if you do love Jesus, if you do have a desire to keep his commandments because you're so grateful for who he is and what he's done, if we do understand the gospel and we believe in Jesus and we're trusting in him instead of our own works, what that means is that we do have life. It means that Jesus is with us right now in a real and substantial way and that he is guiding us. It means that he will not leave us He will be with us to the end of the age and it means that he will bring us out of this evil age and into the next to our true and perfect home. Amen?
Amen. Father, we love you and we thank you for so many blessings. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for outpouring your spirit so that he's with us even right now. Lord Jesus, we know that you're with us and we're so grateful to have you, Lord. We thank you for letting us know that when we close our eyes and we pray to you, we are getting as close to the real world as we possibly can. And we thank you for teaching us all truth, for illuminating your word to us, and we thank you that you have allowed us to be channels of life in the world. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to not be stressed out but that you would give us opportunities and appointments and that you would run us into people according to your perfect will and timing and that we would always be seeking to ask simple questions about spiritual life in the hopes of being led into conversations. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the blessing, the unimaginable privilege of being bearers of light and bearers and channels of divine life and that you would help us to see every day of our lives in that in that sense of adventure, in that sense of mission, in that sense of belonging to the spiritual kingdom even now. Lord, help us, strengthen us, help us to love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.